don't believe, I always think that all this bullshit about to provoke you a little bit more, this is superstitious logic. It's pure ideology. You know this ecological bullshit, like... Uh... Hello, welcome to the end of the world. This is Anthropocene's episode 6. And today we're talking about 2008's WALL-E uh, by Disney Pixar, directed by Andrew Stanton. Uh, which the directors of animated movies don't really matter that much. Uh, but we're going to have some interesting quotes from Stan later on that'll that'll uh, bring him to the forefront a little bit. Um, it is interesting how there's not really like an auteur culture of, of uh, at least within the, the larger mainstream animated movies. Yeah, I mean, there is, there is... Miyazaki. In, yeah, that, that sort of thing. But, uh, you know the Don Bluths of the world but uh, <laughs> nowadays it, it is kind of the director's kind of lost in the in the process what, what Wes Anderson's claymation yeah exploits right uh, so this is the you know I didn't even think about we're, uh, Isle of Dogs and like Trash Island and Wally <laughs> anyway possibility for yeah. future episode uh, but this is I think with Interstellar the, the biggest production and it, I haven't looked at the numbers, but I would imagine that this is the highest grossing movie that we've done. Um, this this or First Reformed, yeah. <laughs> yeah, definitely. Um, so, as we said, Disney Pixar film, uh, known for these blockbuster animated movies that just kind of automatically get handed Oscar for Best Animated Picture as soon as they come out. Um, and so, why are we watching it? Why Why is this relevant for what we do with the podcast well it starts with trash island or trash earth earth, earth aka trash island right skyscrapers of trash um, it, you know I, I listened to our recording uh, last week's episode of uh, Captain Fantastic and just like we said at the beginning of the episode uh, that the relevance to climate change of that movie is kind of implicit. I think the relevance of our podcast in that episode to climate change was sort of implicit. We, you know, we we sort of got off on, <laughs> went off on, not got off on, uh, went off on tangents about counterculture, and of course it's related to it. But I think. Uh, Wally is going to get us back into the, uh, or at least more oriented to actual sort of uh, the climate of the earth, the changing climate of the earth and the practical implications of that, strange as that might sound, uh, coming from a Pixar animated children's film. Is it rated G or PG? I, I didn't check, but I, it's got to be G. Surely G, because there's like barely any... There's some like minor cartoon violence, but right. I can't imagine that it would have been anything above G. Um, so yeah, Wally set in the future when Earth has been abandoned by all of humanity uh, because it's simply too cluttered, too much garbage, right? Too polluted. Um, so Earth, or not Earth, the people of Earth are sitting in the space on these giant sort of space cruises. They're told that it's going to be a five-year cruise or whatever it may be, and now it's been 700 years mm -hmm. that humanity has been living on these ships. 
uh, most notably the Axiom, which is the giant ship where much of the movie's action in space takes place. Mm-hmm. Um, and so the only thing left on Earth, or the only things left on Earth, seem to be the single robot, Wally, uh, and his cockroach friend, playing off that joke that only cockroaches and Twinkies would survive. <laughs> right. So and he you feeds see the both, cockroach you see Twinkies. Both of them, yeah. uh, um, and so Wally is part of a force of similar robots that were made to clean up the garbage, basically. They're like rolling trash compactors. And uh, his his name uh, stands for Waste Allocation Load Lifter Earth Class. Yes. And he's very clearly modeled after Johnny Five from Short Circuit. Um, so just a tiny Johnny Five. Um, very cute, very marketable. You can imagine kids. Very Charlie, very Charlie Chaplin. In its, yeah. in its size, you know, it's like, it's sort of a, I mean, obviously it's not physical if it's not, if it's animated, but it's sort of a, just a, like, physical comedy for a lot of the first, for the whole movie, really. Yeah, and a lot of the uh, kind of kudos that the movie got was how the animators got Wally to be so emotive when he doesn't really talk, he doesn't have any shoulders, mm-hmm. his eyes move, but he doesn't have eyebrows, so right. it's kind of kind of cheating on that a little bit but he's very into um old timey like hollywood musicals was it yeah. bye bye birdie or whatever yeah, that something. He's watching? Uh, yeah and there's a, a real connection with uh sort of analog technology he's always like got the vhs tapes and he's watching the old you know small tvs uh and i think that plays into larger themes of Sort of, you know, sort of a nostalgia thing. Uh, in in comparison to the other character, Eve, who's this sort of sleek, you know, almost Apple product. Yeah, looking, I say, you uh, know. an iPod robot. And and Wally came out in two thousand eight, a significant year for for Apple. I think that's the year the iPhone. It was in two thousand seven, so it, it okay. had just so come right out. right after, yeah. And so, she very much looks like the old like Macintosh desktop computers that were all white and like right hard plastic and, and all that kind of stuff whereas Wally's more uh, kind of modular it's kind of weird sort of like Wally seems more Soviet made <laughs> and Eve is a little bit more streamlined yeah he's industri- he's an industrial robot and, yeah. and Eve is a you know digital technological sort of thing and and Wally spends much of the movie chasing her around it's a very sort of weird relationship dynamic they they have that we'll talk about yeah but it it makes me want to call this movie uh or talk about wally and his infinite horniness as a robot so call this movie melancholy and the infinite horniness um because he's very much part of the magic of disney pixar is that they're able to take these things that you normally wouldn't think of as being cute and then just making them very kind of trite and and kind of stereotypical so of course Wally's a robot but he he understands love he's the every robot he's the every robot yeah Yeah. he learns love from old musicals and wants to hold hands under the moonlight it was almost it was almost like uh, those early scenes are almost like being there uh, Peter Sellers being there where he's like learning human culture through these like old artifacts you know watching these movies the same way Chauncey Gardner in that movie uh, I guess that's the name he goes by uh, 
or Chance is his name. He's Chance the gardener, and he tells her Chauncey. Anyway, um, yeah, he just learns culture by watching television, collecting uh, old crap like mm-hmm. sporks and Rubik's cubes. I I uh, legitimately laughed at the spork scene where he's got he you know he's got the cup full of spoons and the cup full of forks, and he just a little lies you know lays the uh, spork in between. Yeah, and it's full of a lot of kind of cute little, sometimes funny things like that. I mean, it's a Pixar movie. It has things that are that appeal to the whole family because it's designed that way. Um, but yeah, he's sort of in the early part of the movie. Wally is kind of an archaeologist. He just sort of is collecting all these old mm-hmm. uh, human artifacts. Um, there's no dialogue at all for the first however long 20 minutes of the movie where we just see him going about his daily tasks and everything um including when he rolls by the old uh by and large store and by and large are basically the the villain of the film when really uh, later on it's the autopilot of the ship but in reality it's it's by and large which is the kind of walmart costco Disney stand-in in in, in the movie uh, that has... Pornhub. The Pornhub (laughs) stand-in for the movie. Um, A future in which Pornhub owns everything. Um, But you learn that through consumption that has been enabled and kind of maximized by by and large that that's what's led Earth to be completely depopulated and covered in garbage. Um, Simply owning, buying too much shit. Um, and so you see the giant, by and large, ultra store and the, the by and large gas station and everything is a billboard for by and large, is a by and large bank. Later on when we see Fred Willard in that weird sort of use of a real person in a cartoon, um, he's you were, you were saying that it says something like he's the CEO of America. Yeah, I think, I think it says somewhere you see that the uh, conflation of like a biz- business title and uh, political title, uh, I think, and I, and I can't say that for sure because what I was saying is that I watched Wally and Idiocracy <laughs> yeah. back to back because as I was watching Wally, I, I, I noticed a whole lot of uh, similarities and then Googled it and I was definitely not the first person to notice those similarities. There's like all kinds of interviews with Mike Judge um, who made Idiocracy talking about the similarities and, and that sort of thing. Yeah. And Wally kind of is a whatever uh, Luke Wilson's character is named in that movie. Not sure. Not sure, yeah. Um, Wally is kind of, in a way, that character for, for his movie. Yeah, he's just um, the, the everyman, the every robot. Whatever. Yeah, who just kind of accidentally does good things, mm-hmm. but also makes the right decision and has a good moral compass and even though all of it's driven by, again, his infinite robot horniness for for Eve and her sleek curves. Um, something I wanted to talk about with Eve, um, who is the other robot that, that lands uh, on Earth and surprises Wally. She is Eve or the extraterrestrial vegetarian evaluator, or vegetation evaluator. Um, the use of the word extraterrestrial is pretty interesting there, I think, that seems like we already humankind has already adapted to not being on earth um, but she shows up looking for plant life and 
what I thought was very interesting um, is that her first reaction to everything is to annihilate it, mm-hmm. is to just blow the fuck away. Right. Uh, very kind of military impulse, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, first time Wally startles her, she blows a bunch of stuff up. She gets stuck to a magnet on a ship and blows up like a whole <laughs> fleet of old cargo ships that are right. kind of moored. Um, I thought that was just an interesting kind of side note that it's supposed to be this basically peaceful machine that's out there looking for vegetation, looking for whether or not Earth can be populated again, um, and has has its very clear directive, but then its first reaction to everything is kill it. And it, and it looks so harmless. Yeah. And simple. And that's, that's sort of the Apple thing, right, is to you know, be so intuitive to the user's needs that everything just looks very simple. And yet behind that are, you know, uh, Foxconn suicide nets. Yeah. yeah. Um, That's a good, good (laughs) reference. So part of the, the kind of whimsy of the film, and we've already talked about how Wally's kind of painted as this romantic um, is also when you see Eve get off the ship, her first reaction once the ship drops her off and leaves is to sort of fly up in the air and like have this moment of like freedom and play before she goes about scanning everything. Um, so it's there's a very clear kind of um, anthropomorphizing of the robots, like from the very beginning, right? Um, and, there, and there has to be has for to, yeah. for you know for anything to work, you, they have to do that. But it also maybe. Uh, can be read on I, I definitely think it can be read on other levels too the, the just the idea that we're asked to care about the emotions of robots is meaningful I think yeah um, over that of the humans because in a lot of ways uh, the humans aren't the villains but they, they kind of lack relatable emotions I guess or they lack relatability mm-hmm. whereas a, like you're saying Wally's the, the every robot so we he's cute he has a romantic side. He's very dutiful. Um, he's and, but brave. He, but he's also curious and, you know, likes learning and, you know, has hobbies. And, yeah, we definitely identify. He's a robot with hobbies. Yeah, we identify with him very quickly. It's it, it's interesting how we're talking about this. It's like, oh, what a cute movie. And, you know, there's cute moments with sporks. And, and we were just talking before we started recording and reading some... Uh, sort of conservative leaning, uh, leaning, uh, conservative <laughs> all the way over, yeah, toppled, lying down again. over, uh, conservative opinions on the movie, and they call it, um, basically left liberal propaganda, uh, yeah. which I'm not disputing that it is that it has an agenda, it certainly does. Uh, and you say it definitely has an agenda. One person that would disagree with you is Andrew Stanton, who's the director. Right. Who um, I think he had an agenda when he said it, when he denied the agenda. <laughs> yeah, because uh, in a this was an article I found through uh, Vulture. Um, but you know whether or not the truth of this is debatable. But you had the director Andrew Stanton saying, "Oh, I had no ecological bias. I had no ecological bent in making this movie." Um, I just wanted to tell a love story about the last robot living alone on Earth, so I needed all the humans to be gone. He didn't want to kill them because it's a Pixar movie, 
So what's an easy way? He thought, oh, trash, it's too polluted, so they all left, and they left the robot behind. Yeah, so it's like, why is the second half of the film about uh, corporate manipulation and human consumption? <laughs> exactly. <laughs> yeah, um, I mean, because it's, it's really not even about the robot. The movie's not really about Wally. On there's a whole level to this film that's not even about Wally at all. He's yeah. just he's just our tour guide from this shit show that is humanity's orientation to the world. Yeah. So there's the the Wally Eve love story Pixar shell that has to exist for the film to exist. It has to have that sort of central conceit. Mm-hmm. But then there's all of the interesting stuff that's happening outside of that. Um, so Not that the love story is not interesting. <laughs> I mean, it's not. But <clears throat> yeah, it's really, it I might mean, be to children. It, it's a very, children. It was a very sure. popular movie. Although it is kind of weird that it's a whole... The whole relationship is based on Eve has her directive and she's trying to accomplish it. And Wally just wants to be with her, so he's kind of, sort of trying to help her accomplish the directive, so they can then be together. It's like, oh, let me help you finish this, so then you can retire yeah. or whatever. Really, it is. really, I feel like it's a parable about a very serious problem, which is straight white male marginalization. Um, this this is a pet issue with me, as you know. Uh, <laughs> the American man is in decline. And it's time we uh, reasserted our dominance, right? You agree with me right now? Uh, yeah. <laughs> so, um, to spiral off of that a little bit, the, the AV Club, uh, Sean O'Neill of the AV Club back in 2008 collected a list of these controversial opinions on the film um, that go along with the kind of um, poignant observation you are just making. <laughs> um <laughs> And it, he breaks it down these four categories, and just to go through them real quick, the first big controversy here on the film was it promotes liberal fascism. So you had a lot of people saying that it's just, this is just left wing propaganda because only the left wing wants the earth to survive. I, I don't really know what. Well, the because point is. because global warming is a left wing conspiracy. Yeah. Therefore, any film that takes as its premise the reality of climate change is. Propaganda, liberal yeah. propaganda. Yeah, so you, you have this quote from uh, Shannon Coffin, um, who is writing for the National Review, who says, From the first moment of the film, my kids were bombarded with leftist propaganda about the evils of mankind. It's a shame, too, because the robot had promise. The story was just awful, however. Nice to see that Disney and Pixar can make mega millions off of telling us just how greedy, lazy, and destructive we all are. Yeah, and you paid for it. Yeah, you took your kids, probably bought them snacks, right? Spent 80 bucks at Drove the there in your fucking Range Rover, whatever it was. Like, there, there's, like there's a whole uh, conversation that, that needs to happen about, about that sort of issue. Like, it, it makes me think, uh, Matt, you and I went to that conference in... Savannah, was it in Savannah when we heard the guy give the presentation about Disney heroines versus princesses? I wasn't there. You weren't there? No. You were there. I, I was there. Okay. I thought, for some reason, I thought y'all were there. Uh, anyway, there's this whole, you know, issue in, uh, you know, 
studying pop culture, children's movies. Uh, and this guy's making the, the argument that we should call the female Disney characters, stop calling them princesses, call them heroines. And I guess my thought is that to accept the premise of that debate between princess and heroine is really to just ratify the presence of a transnational media conglomerate in your like in the raising of our children in this culture you know what I'm saying it's like yeah. oh should we call them heroin or sh- heroines or should we call them princesses um, you know we should call them heroines because uh, it's it's a more empowering term which of course it is but you're still by by engaging in that conversation you're leaving out the bigger question of like should should Disney play a role in raising my children no that's insane. <laughs> well, it's even worse than that. Of should Disney play a part in shaping my worldview? Right. You said I can't remember if we were recording at some point in the last couple of weeks. You said Disney owns my childhood. Yeah, they do, and that's <laughs> and the, they're very kind of explicit in that mission of they want to own everyone's childhood. That's why they own Star Wars and all of that other shit. Like, if they could buy up every piece of intellectual property related to things kids are into, mm-hmm. they would do it. One hundred percent, and they're probably going to end up doing it. And we were talking earlier about consumption, and and you were reading some sort of review that called might be this AV club that called it hypocritical. Called Wally. Yeah, that was one of the four big things. Right. The so, big complaints. So Wally is a hypocritical film because it's made by Disney, who's this, like I said, media conglomerate with. The way I think about it is, you see that you know the the mountains and skyscrapers of trash at the beginning of Wall-E. How much of that is Disney shit? A lot. Uh, and so, yes, it is hypocritical, but that's a terrible argument because, like, what I was saying is that hypocrisy does not preclude the validity of one, uh, you know, of one side of of the hypocritical issue. So just because, uh, you know, Disney is hypocritical does not mean the substance of a particular Disney film, Wally, is incorrect. It does not exclude, uh, it does not preclude a particular film's ability to make valid points. Uh, and yes, it is completely hypocritical. The same way Avatar, you know, is hypocritical, and, and any any movie that's going to try to critique the Western Western culture um, and be a box office smash is going to be hypocritical. Um, but we should still, I think, pay attention to what it's saying and yeah. and and talk about its hypocrisy rather than just dismiss it uh, as liberal fascism or whatever they call it. Yeah, and it gets back to the central question we've had about all these films, which is can a big Hollywood film do whatever it is that we want it to do? Can it can it put forth some sort of um, you know good faith critique, but also kind of call to action to do something, anything at all about about climate change? And to ask, well, does Wally do that? Well, you know, maybe and you maybe were, not. You were speculating that 
uh, Stanton's sort of uh, <laughs> backpedal uh, might have something to do with the fact that the real villain of Wally is this huge corporation by and large, yeah. which which could be a sort of Disney type thing, and and he doesn't want to bite the hand that feeds him. Yeah, think about the, the axiom: the ship is basically designed to be a resort or a theme park, right? Who does resorts and theme parks really well? Disney, right? So it would make a lot of sense that maybe he didn't want to be too on the nose or, or to come out and just say yes 100% because that's who's cutting his check at the end of the day. It reminds me, we're, we're, I'm sure we'll get into the issue of this uh, obesity problem depicted in Wally, but it reminds me of the, this is the second uh, Dimitri Martin joke reference I'll make on this podcast and probably not the last. Uh, he says, I find the theme of most theme parks is wait in line, fatty. Uh, <laughs> And so you're right. I, I didn't make that connection, but yeah, the axiom, which, if I'm not mistaken, means something like a self uh, claim taken to be self evidently true, or you know, something just presumed or assumed. Mm-hmm. Is it uh, to be axiomatic? Right. Uh, yeah, that's. The, I hadn't made that connection between the axiom as uh, as a sort of Disney. Disney World, <laughs> in a way, um, more like a like Disney Cruise Line type thing, <laughs> yeah. right? Um, yeah. And all the all the you know super fat giant baby people of the future on their floating chairs with their mm-hmm. their mills in a cup, and the the ads are like now try blue, so your suit your onesie <laughs> turns yeah. blue, and that's the only thing. Yeah, and it. Uh it goes from blue to red and, and there may be some sort of political implication in that it's like the oh, you know the, the advertiser tells you try blue and so and, and so their clothes turn blue but it's just a surface level cosmetic thing it, you know obviously nothing's changed they just they just look a little bit different uh, and very kind of ham-fisted critique on uh, cell phones smartphones and which again, uh, since the iPhone had just become a thing, um, it's kind of interesting. And it's not, you know, it's not the bravest commentary to make that people look at their screens too much. Well, it's 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 not the bravest, and it's it's because it's so obvious. But yeah. it's also um, very real. Um, I think I've got a quote here, actually, Wendell Berry. <laughs> Obviously, uh, in his uh, essay, the, th- uh, the Thought of Limits in a Prodigal Age, he says, he's talking about uh, the opioid crisis, and then, he's, then he starts, then he says, uh, the screen problem receives less attention, but it may be the worst, the worst of the two, uh, but it may be the worst of the two because it wears the aura of technological progress and social approval. So no one is for the opioid crisis. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. Uh, no one is for drug abuse. But there is rhetoric that turns this uh, uh, distracting technology, the screen problem, as he calls it, uh, into a narrative of progress. 
as if, you know, inattention were some sort of, you know, marker of progress. And that, <clears throat> there's that whole book uh, by Nicholas Carr, who we saw talk, give, give a talk. Yeah, to, to I was the, there for that. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, uh, the Shallows by Nicholas Carr is sort of about, not sort of about, it is about uh, deteriorating, what was I saying? Attention spans. Uh, <laughs> and uh, so, yeah, you're right. It is, it's almost trite to be like, oh, we, we stare at our screens too much. Uh, but it's, it's trite because it's true. And it's, it's so obvious and axiomatic. Uh, and uh, <laughs> in our, in our, it's so in your face. Uh, <laughs> um, and just I'm this, weirdly on tonight. <laughs> <laughs> this uh, idea of, progress and something little very harps on a lot rightfully so is this idea that progress is almost always seen as a net positive no matter what it is or what it's for a kind of nil postman attitude of why did they invent cruise control what what problem did that solve the problem of having your foot on the gas pedal and he says i never really saw that as a problem um but just to show the other side of that from the the kind of um more radical pro-progress at any cost uh, crowd. It's from this review, and this is again from that AV Club um, article. And this is a real thing that I'm not making up at all. This is a real person. Uh, his name is Gennady Stolyarov II, editor-in-chief of The Rational Argumentator, uh, which is a real thing. I promise I went and looked. It's just as crazy as it sounds. <laughs> but he wrote about Wally. Wally is an assault on modern civilization born of deep economic and historical ignorance. The film shamefully betrays the efforts of countless heroic individuals who have raised humanity out of the muck of barbarism. Its anti-technological, anti-capitalist message needs to be exposed and countered by all thinking individuals. What was the first part of that? It's an assault on modern civilization right. born of it's, deep no, economic... Humans are an assault on modern civilization. Like Modern civilization is an assault on the world. Uh, this guy's just ties like, it to capitalism, which is, um, if anything, if there's a villain of Wally, it's capitalism, capitalist consumption. Yeah, yeah. And and I was thinking, uh, like I said, I watched this back to back with Idiocracy, and I definitely prefer Wally on a on an intellectual level because. Deeply intellectual film. Uh, well, well, it's it's in a lot of ways it's more intellectual than Idiocracy because Wally at least has the decency to show the humans as sort of manipulated uh, by by and large by the corporation, whereas Mike Judge uh, in Idiocracy sort of suggests that it's. Um, this, the stupid people came first. You know, it's like the, obviously he satirizes corporations with the uh, the great restaurant uh, buttfuckers uh, and all all those other you know Starbucks. He says I really could use a Starbucks. We don't have time for a hand job right now. Uh, <laughs> so there's, there's definitely you know he satirizes corporations, but he seems to say that. Corporations are just extensions of these stupid people. And so there's really no reason, we might get the idea watching Idiocracy, that there's really no reason to critique the system because it's just, it's just 
stupid people. Uh, sort of redneck. And they're outbreeding you. They're, they're outbreeding the smart people, which is literally... I've only seen the movie once, but if I recall, that's how it opens, right? Right, and it, it doesn't ask you in the beginning to think about why, you know, think about why this culture of, of uh, stupid people, which, which is very sort of class-based... Uh, oh yeah, you know the, the trailer trash are the ones that are having all the kids. Right. So what what uh, conditions are creating this culture of of class where you can have trailer parks everywhere and and lack of education and, and all these things that lead to the premise of this film, uh, but it, it just sort of it doesn't think back far enough. It just says stupid people are breeding. And then they run the world, uh, and so there's really no reason to to question the system. The system is just us. Uh, whereas Wally seems to suggest that there is, um, s- uh, to some degree, a rift between the people and a sort of technological elite that is uh, using its media to manipulate people into blind uh, you know hedonism and consumption and and that sort of thing so that's when I say Wally is superior intellectually that's what I mean it it sort of goes back one step further than than uh, idiocracy does yeah and what kind of struck me about the um, the whole setup of the post-earth setup on the axiom is for one we we talked about this before. Is that um, sort of like in Interstellar? There are no black people in the future, according to Wally. There, uh, you have when they show the sort of Hall of Fame of former captains. They make it very clear to show you that there's been a black captain or two. But again, only after there have been several white captains, right? Mm-hmm. Um, but everyone on the ship is sort of like this white Midwesterner kind of archetype of just sort of generally affable kind of nice people that it's, just, it's the people that they see in the restaurant in Captain Fantastic yeah or in the bank I guess in the bank yeah. are these people sick right um, and there's this sort of implicate this kind of cyclical nature that's I think is implied is that these people I guess may have paid to get onto the ship to get off of Earth but it sort of seems as if by and large set this up as some sort of Mia culpa of like we did this so while we're fixing it we'll send you all to space and keep you in this sort of mm-hmm. capitalist stasis so there's no money being exchanged stuff just comes to the people mm-hmm. so it, it it sort of is this weird kind of idea of the corporation fucked up so badly that they're like we'll just set up this perfect cycle cyclical world and you'll live there forever um, and then eventually can come back and maybe we'll set everything back up the way. Yeah, it's be. like it's like a resort and someone shit in the pool, and and so they're gonna like put you up in the penthouse while they while they clean up all this shit. Yeah, while they can get the, you know the. the it's exactly like a resort where someone shit in the pool. <laughs> <laughs> one to one correlation. Yep. Yep. Um, um, but it's sort of, and you see uh, Fred Willard come back a couple of times. So like when he admits, like, "Oh, you can't." Turns out you can't come back to Earth. Things are too bad. Mm-hmm. Um, all that sort of stuff. So 
the the weird kind of like paternalism of by and large and how they sort of are taking care of humanity uh, or not sort of they're one hundred percent taking care of humanity right um, and well why is that well to keep their consumer base mm-hmm. afloat I guess and, and you and see the the babies when they're teaching the babies it's A is for Axiom, that's where you live. B is for, by and large, that's your best friend in the yeah. world. And the babies are, there's a very quick shot of babies in their cribs, and, like, the screens are over their cribs. <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah. It's like if, if you heard, if you just heard someone talk about these ideas, it would sound like a sort of George Orwell dystopia but because it's in the context of a children's movie, uh, it's not. It doesn't seem quite as sinister when you're watching it. But when you talk about it, you're like, "That's, it's pretty fucked up." Yeah, it's pretty dark. Yeah, I think it's, um, in a lot of ways, easily the the kind of darkest Pixar movie. If you're not talking about like personal tragedy, right? So like the beginning of Up is sad, but that's more of like on a personal. Yeah, on a sociological level. scale, Wally's pretty pretty bleak. There's there's actually one moment that may that I wrote down uh, to talk about that seems especially pessimistic, and it's it's towards the end when I can't remember the human character's name. He, anyway, the two thousand one A Space Odyssey theme, you know, doom yeah. doom 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 starts playing, and if I'm not mistaken, the the use of that music in 2001 is like it always accompanies some sort of like giant leap in human consciousness like you know in like human evolutionary progress and the music it starts to play in Wally when the human gets out of his chair and stands up on two feet like this is the accomplishment you know this is the great leap is that the human got out of his chair and out you know out from behind his screen and stood on his own two feet uh, and there's just something you know kind of cynical about about that image with with that you know with all the connotations of that music playing and, and I've thought a lot about the the bone loss and stuff because at one point when uh, Fred Willard's character is talking about going back to Earth through one of the little like pre-recorded videos says uh, oh you know while while you've been staying here you've probably experienced some uh, because of the effects of gravity you've expect some or you've experienced some bone loss and they show the graph of like a regular human body and then gets sort of larger and larger and the bones sort of start shrinking a little mm. bit and you also see it when you see the pictures of the captains and they're like they just get Progressively, progressively more obese yeah, yeah. and um, earlier when you're learning about what the axiom is back on earth when Wally you know uh, goes past one of these motion activated holographic billboard things it's explaining what the ship is like and it, it says we even have hover chairs so you can bring grandma along and so the implication is that eventually everybody decided that the hover chairs were just better than walking so it's a kind of idiocracy Impulse of, well, all of humanity just said "fuck walking." We're going to ride around in these these ho- these uh, um, hover chairs mm-hmm. instead, and so they all become these these you know 
blobs that have lost all their bone density and can't, can't really walk anymore. Mm-hmm. Um, these kind of like just water-filled beanbag chairs that sit and just wait for robots to bring literal them. Literal consumers. Yeah. Like, and that's all they really do. That's yeah, kind of all they're for. And, and to the point of, you know, of, of pessimism, uh, something that, a theme that keeps emerging in our discussions of, of these films, um, in these anthropocenes is uh, telling the truth to children. And so you see it in the world of Captain Fantastic, you know, the character telling uh, truth to children. You see it in, in a similar way in First Reformed of Toller telling, you know, deciding to tell the children a sort of dark story about the, the Underground Railroad. But in a sort of meta way, Wally is sort of an attempt to to give a children access to a kind of alternate alternative perspective than what they're probably you know generally exposed to and not that any six-year-old is going to immediately you know understand the critique being made but it is. I mean, in some way, it is propaganda, and and every movie is in some way propaganda. Uh, if it has any sort of message, it is propaganda. Um, so, it, it seems like Wally is it, it is trying to, despite what Stanton says, is trying to take a sort of alternate uh, or give a sort of alternative perspective and put it in a place easily accessible for younger people and I think so too um, it is kind of interesting um, when they return to Earth at the end um, and I don't know if you watch the end credits the credit sequence at the end uh, it's, it's like it, yeah. primitive cave painting yeah, type yeah, yeah. thing of, it reminded me of uh, oh, what's that animated movie with David Spade though, where he's like a Emperor's New Crew. Emperor's New Crew. Is there some sort of similar artwork? Yeah, it's it's kind of this sort of old kind of tribal sort of artwork. Yeah. Um, and it's showing humans sort of relearning how to be primitive. It kind of goes along with that what you're saying about the um, the scene where he stands up and you have the kind of 2001 mm-hmm. music. It's sort of going backwards, which is a very kind of anti-progress take to have of instead of living in a perfect sort of space utopia where you literally don't have to do anything sort of fully automated space capitalism kind of Um, now they're back on earth and they have to learn how to cook over a fire and like farm and Mm -hmm. sleep under the stars or whatever it may be and they're all automatically very into it I guess which is one of the more kind of fantastical things from the movie, but you know, you have to wrap it all up pretty quickly. So you can't have like, you know, uh, these little conflicts among groups of people. Like I want to stay on the ship forever and drink my cupcake in a cup. I don't want to go back to earth. Um, but they're all very into it and they're just now we're back on earth and we're making it happen. Mm -hmm. It's like a reverse interstellar, right? Instead of trying to find a new home, let's go back to where home was. Right. Right. Yeah, it's, uh, it's interesting how progress is so often conceived of just like the next logical step forward uh, in whatever direction you're going. 
but I can't remember if it's Kim Stanley Robinson or something we've talked about in the last several weeks takes issue with that conception of progress and sort of says you can be you know progress does not have to be defined that way as like the next um, the next logical step given what you've already done it can be reevaluating. You know, maybe the next step is stepping backwards and evaluating what you've done and making taking corrective actions to what you've done. And that's how true progress works. Uh, and so and so part of that corrective action might be uh, reinstituting old ideas. Um, like like you're saying with this sort of in credit sequence. Uh, and it's interesting that both Wally and Idiocracy have uh, agriculture as like a major plot point. You know, it's yeah. like a plant that has to be saved. Um, Electrolytes. <laughs> what plants create? <laughs> Brought to you by Carl's Jr. Um, yeah. So, so there is a sort of uh, agrarian message somewhere in both of these films. Uh, but they're not... Uh, I don't think anyone's going to be starting any organic gardens after watching either one of these movies. No. Um, but this idea that of revisiting progress and being critically minded about it, I think, is important. And just for a practical example, this is probably going to sound dumb, but I'm going to say it anyway. Um, we have all this advanced technology and all this, all these telecommunicative abilities, and the one thing that came back into style and is now the number one way in which most people communicate with one another is the the text message which is literally what it says a message consisting of text Mm -hmm. so it's the simplest form of like passing notes back and forth to one another right um and that's where we've landed as human beings of that's the pinnacle of communication well and and it seems like you know that idea sort of won out it's uh, because there have there have been options yeah um and I think, I think it's in, I think it's in Infinite Jest, the novel about. Uh, there's an attempt to explain why, even though we have, or you know, in the in the world of that novel, they have the capability to, uh, what they call interface, uh, with each other to see the other person and hear them, you know, what uh, sort of version of FaceTime. Uh, but more people prefer to either talk on the phone or text because so much more is required of you emotionally to when you see someone, when you're talking to someone face-to-face, uh, even if it's through a, a video transmission, you are present in a way that is sort of the foundation of, of the definition of the word present, uh, that you don't have to be if you don't see the person. And so texting not only allows you to not have to see the person, but to more, to have more time to craft what you're saying. So it's like it's the form of communication that requires the least amount of effort in terms of uh, emotional effort. You know, you don't have to be... Uh, you just don't have to be as in, invested in communication because you have more time. Uh, you know, you're not on a, a strict sort of 
social time limit like you obviously there's like standards when you're having a face-to-face conversation like if you just sat there while we're having this conversation and didn't respond for 15 seconds it would be <laughs> weird, weird yeah. right uh, but if you do if you don't respond for five minutes to a text it's, it's not that weird uh, anyway uh, all that to say I think texting is uh the path of least resistance. It's like the laziest form of communication we can possibly have. Yeah, I don't know if you've ever um, accidentally FaceTimed someone. I've done it a couple times where I've like not been paying attention, hit the wrong button or something, and it'll say FaceTiming whoever, um, and I'll immediately panic and you know cancel the FaceTime. And then text the person and be like, that was an accident. <laughs> like, Don't think that I really wanted to FaceTime with you. Right. And uh, like worst case scenario, they answer the FaceTime and you just go, sorry, I didn't mean to do that. It's quicker, but it requires so much more of you. you I wouldn't feel, even do that. I would, you feel, like, you feel I would literally like point seen. the phone yeah. away from myself and, and turn it off. <laughs> don't look um, at me. I'm, I'm hideous. I would shoot the phone with a gun. Um, so, yeah, just... Uh, talking about the film and, and progress and, and what really constitutes or how should we view progress and, and how it's constituted, right? So is it just the next new thing and the next new thing and the next new thing forever and always? Or is there a, is there, does there come a point where we think um, let's revisit some of the older kind of ways in which we kind of understood the world or, or ways in which we interacted with one another, right? Because that's what happens at the end of the film, I think, and what it's suggesting is that uh, the human beings sort of go back, right? Um, you have the captain sitting in front of his computer learning what dancing is and what, you know, f- how farming worked and all that sort of stuff and being fascinated by it. Sort of in the same way that Wally's fascinated when he's going through all the old trash and finding all the all those little artifacts. So I think that's one thing that the, the movie suggests. And again, I, I don't think that's without... would I don't think that would be without complication because that's, as they say in the film, 700 years of a culture of just, just completely benign consumerism of just sitting in the chair and being having things fed to you both psychologically and physically. Um, I don't think that changes super Overnight. quickly. Yeah, yeah. Progress is, um, you know, maybe sort of counterintuitively, progress may sort of be resistance. I I find it very uh, interesting, uh, like Captain Fantastic says, interesting is a non-word. I won't say interesting. Um, It's worth talking about that a major villain of Wally is autopilot. Yeah. You know, and so you see the human, uh, whatever the character's name is, is literally wrestling with the literal autopilot, as if to suggest on a more symbolic level that the problem is kind of just this status quo, unchecked status quo. Um, and it's really to get back to that article's, you know, liberal agenda. Um, it's sort of an argument for regulation. You know, the autopilot is just sort of the laissez-faire. Let, you know, <laughs> let things do as they please, uh, and, and they'll, they'll work out fine because, you know, it's, uh, uh, 
what's the hand the the invisible hand will guide things that sort of thing and you see where the invisible hand guides this society into yeah, the, the an uninhabitable the planet world. and and leaving the planet and uh, excessive consumption all these things and so yeah some sort of regulation some sort of intervention with this autopilot you know is what saves the day yeah and you know talking about the invisible hand it's the the light paths on the floor that all the chairs and all the robots follow, right? And you can't get off your track, and you're mm-hmm. just kind of going around. It's like that thing in Donnie Darko, like the path that comes out of the <laughs> Yeah, I mean, yeah. He, he can't help but follow it. Right. Um, but yeah, the, um, the autopilot serving as this sort of kind of Faustian bargain, sort of like representative of this Faustian bargain of as long as you let me take care of everything... Um, you won't have any trouble, but you can't go back to Earth. And so you have this sort of struggle to, uh, at, basically out of curiosity, right? We talked about Wally's being curious. The captain, Captain McRae, um, Jeff Garland, his voice, um, being just curious and wanting to go back to Earth and thinking, well, we know we have to go back. We, But it never really understands, like, why he even cares. I mean, he spent all the time with his, like, future Google learning about all this stuff. Um, but this idea of regulation that you're talking about, um, you have, when the captain first wakes up, he has to go through his protocol, right? And he has to check all of the systems and everything's been so automated that he just sort of says whatever it is. He's like life support systems and they're like, oh, we're functioning at hundred percent or whatever. Um, and it's all very kind of, you know, repetitive. Um, he likes the morning announcements cause it's the one thing he actually gets to do. But even then it's just him saying like, everything's fine, it's 72 degrees like it is every day, um, that kind of thing. Um, so this idea of just boredom being the sort of, just repetitive boredom of being in a paradise where you never have to do anything, um, and there being a lack of chaos and a lack mm-hmm. of, of, you know, things that could go wrong just being something that he's not interested in once once he learns what the earth is like and what they could go back to yeah it's it's as if you know so much of what technology provides is is an answer to a problem that's not actually a problem yeah Um, it's actually the source of satisfaction in life like if if say automation takes away um you know, certain jobs or, or a job that you get satisfaction from doing. Not, not that I think a robot necessarily could take away meaning a meaningful job. Um, I don't know. There's some things to unpack there, but uh, <laughs> robot better not take my job. <laughs> uh, I've lost the train of thought. We need to learn about what a what Bernie's policy is on uh, robots becoming English teachers see if he's pro or against that that's that's a big thing I vote that's I'm a one issue voter it, and it's whether or not a robot can take my job I, I, if you know if if the curriculum is is uh, set and enforced and enforced <laughs> why not but we're what I was saying is we're trying to free ourselves up you know technology is sold to us as a way to free our lives from this work Drudgery, Wendell Berry's always using that term, sort of sarcastically. We're yeah. trying to free ourselves from the, in quotes, uh, 
drudgery of life. But then what do we do? But then there's nothing else to do. And we sort of have this uh, idea that there is something to do and that and that pleasure is autonomous and is a naturally existing category and doesn't exist in a complex relationship with with hard work. You know what I'm saying? Uh, obviously, like, the... Uh, piece of pie you eat tastes better when you when you when you haven't had it in a long time or you you know what I'm saying uh, if you just eat that over and over and over again it, it doesn't taste as good yeah uh, it just it's not a self-enclosed category uh, sometimes you need to go uh, you know work outdoors and like get a sunburn to appreciate <laughs> air conditioning or, yeah. or something like that uh, yeah and you can get used to anything. Uh, and so if you don't have some semblance of balance, you're going to you're going to be as miserable in your pleasure as you are in your work. Um, so like I, what, I, what I'm saying is this the reasons uh, you know advertisers essentially give us for, the technology we use are, are just sort of ultimately defeat uh, they're against our our better interests um, but it's like we think we think we want to escape work and obviously there's I'd say most forms of contemporary employment are <laughs> yes. are you know, very much worth escaping, but they're not worth escaping in order to do nothing and watch, you know, whatever they're watching and Wally on their screens or whatever we're watching, uh, dancing with the stars or whatever people watch. Is that still a thing? I don't know. Uh, Probably. <laughs> uh, yeah, we'll, we'll, we'll get used to everything and, and, and get sick of anything. I think uh, "Miserable in Your Pleasure" is what I'm going to title my my goth rock album <laughs> that I'm, that I'm going to make. Um, but there's this um, idea: if you're in a, a kind of post-work utopia, and this is this sort of utopian socialist idea that if we can automate all the real shit jobs, and then we'll be freer to do things that are really meaningful. Um, and I think I think it's a good line to draw, like you were saying, between what we think of when we think of work, what we talk about when we talk about work, which is the shitty thing we all have to do to get a paycheck and pay our bills and all that kind of stuff. You were talking about, we were talking about labor alienated. Yes. Employment as opposed to work. You know, work is something I think by definition work accomplishes a, uh, it like it leaves the environment in which it's done in a different state. I think like that's like a, a scientific definition of it. So, so like lifting weights is like not actually work because you just put the thing back down where you found it. Uh, <laughs> well, I guess maybe your muscles change and so on. Tell that to these pythons. <laughs> All I'm saying is, uh, I, don't, I don't even know what I'm saying anymore. But well, I, the, the point I was, I was trying to make is that if you had this kind of, utopia where you're not beholden to do this sort of wage slave labor anymore 
um, then you would be freer to do the kind of work you're talking about, which is the kind of meaningful work, right? A work that is not only, um, you know, maybe helpful in a general kind of sense, but is also fulfilling on a kind of personal level, right? Um, whether that's you want to build a birdhouse or you want to um, create a ballet or whatever, right? Like it's still work. It's just um, yeah. I think I think harder that, to monetize, I guess. Right, um, and it's inconsistent with the the industri- you know techno industrial capitalist model of society. It just yeah, it's it's a more uh, agrarian sort of orientation. You know, it would have to be everything would have to change for that to be possible. Yeah, uh, but I think it's I think it's the writer uh, Paul Goodman, who I really like, who says like the proper aims of humanity are homemaking, art, and sport. He's like <laughs> these are the things we should be doing, uh, and. I, I can't really find any fault with that. <laughs> like, <laughs> uh, yeah. Take care of your house, your family, read books, uh, watch movies, write stories, play music, listen to music, uh, play sports. That's, that's <laughs> no. all I want to do. <laughs> what more is there? Right. Um, These are the proper aims. Uh, yeah, I agree with that. Obesity, Obe- yeah, because that was, was, that was, was something we one. we had some notes about. I think we can uh, discuss. That was one of the uh, the four prongs, the four horsemen of the apocalypse <laughs> that that AV AV Club article is pointing at. Is that there were a lot of um, anti um, fat shaming, sort of pro positive body image uh, outlets and writers coming out and saying that the big problem with Wally is that the villains were the the overweight sort of fat couch potato Americans um, which we've already kind of touched on is is not really the case they're not uh, if anything um, they are not the villains they're the victims right um, and they're the ones that are kind of suffering because of this thing that's been kind of done to them and they they may have had a hand in sort of accepting it but it's by no means yeah, their, their, their fault. Their crime is like passivity. Their, yes. The willingness to let this happen. But they are not the agents causing it to happen. Uh, yeah, I want to take it to a, a, a kind of weirder place. And, and <laughs> okay. the, the obesity conversation about this theme that, we, that keeps coming up. Uh, and I think we were, we noticed this last week or the week before about uh, a lack of mothers mm-hmm. in these films, and especially in Interstellar, the mother characters have been, as Rob Nixon says, imaginatively expelled, and so we're, we're definitely living in this uh, patriarchy, uh, and you see, you know. The uh, McConaughey's character Cooper explicitly rejects the ethic of like caretaking. Uh, anyway, I only bring this up uh, in connection with the obesity portrayed uh, as part of the con- you know excessive consumption in Wally, uh, because 
it reminded me of this this idea I'd heard by a, a thinker, writer, psychologist named Marion Woodman, uh, who who works a lot with addiction, especially food and alcohol addiction. Um, and she basically says that it's a sort of, uh, a lot of addictions are, and she's a, a very sort of, like I said, she's a psychologist. Uh, she basically says addictions can be a concretization of psychological, spiritual problems uh, that we sort of concretize to uh, compensate. Anyway, uh, let me just read a, a little passage here and uh, and we'll go from there. This is from an interview with Marion Woodman. Um, I think to get to the core of the problem, you've got to look at what we have done to the body, what we have done to matter in our culture. The Latin word mater means mother. Mother is she who cherishes, nurtures, receives, loves, provides security. When the mother cannot accept her child in its peeing, puking, animal totality, the child too rejects its body. It then has no secure home on this earth. And in the absence of that primal security, it substitutes other mothers. Mother church, mother alma mater, even mother food. A desperate love-hate relationship develops. The terror of losing mother equals the terror of being buried alive in her. Without the security of the body home, the individuals must rely as best they can on these substitutes for the maternal security they do not have. More than that, if the body is rejected, its destruction becomes one's modus operandi. The fear of cancer does not make an addictive personality stop smoking. In the absence of the nourishing mother, whether personal or archetypal, people try to concretize her in things as if to make present what they know is absent. End quote. And it's it's interesting to <clears throat> think about that um, in relation to the, the system that's running everything on the Axiom and the voice of the ship, which is a woman's voice, and it's Sigourney Weaver, mm-hmm. right? Which has this, this tie that kind of gets to what you're saying, where... Um, she's the voice of the ship and in Alien which is her other big space related film franchise the uh, the sort of system is called Mother right I didn't I did not recall that I've seen it one time a long time ago <laughs> yeah. so the the system that she's sort of that version she's that for Wally right so in Alien it's, it's referred to as Mother and I think it's an acronym that stands for something um, is it sort of like HAL in, yeah. in 2001? Okay. Yeah. Um, so you have on the Axiom the Sigourney Weaver voice of the ship um, serving as kind of mother for all of these children that literally kind of never give out, get out of the cradle. They're just sort of there to be nurtured to a fault and, mm-hmm. and to sort of never have to never have to worry about you know, losing the mother in any sort of meaningful sense because it's always right there in their face. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's very comforting, and that's why it's been 700 years and no one's thought, why are we still here? Like, what's going on? Shouldn't we be doing something else? There's no unrest in that world. Yeah, it's... uh 
I don't think it's it's like it's no coincidence that in Wally, you know, both the human bodies and the planet have been destroyed, yeah, uh, or are in extremely poor condition, um, and and to to speak to the the issue of sort of fat shaming, I think that there has to be a very clear distinction made between pointing out uh, public health issues and making an individual, you know, shaming an, an individual. Yeah. Uh, we have to be able to talk about public health and, and the reality is, uh, I mean, the reality in the film and obviously it's an analog to the real world. Uh, I mean, that's the reality. There is an obesity problem especially in Western culture. Um, yes. And to point that out and have it, have that called fat shaming is, is, it's kind of ridiculous in my, to my mind. Uh, it, it's just a disregard for, for, you know, what is clearly the, the plain truth. Uh, and it's a, the, what you're talking about with idiocracy, that it's the, Stupid, poor, usually white Americans, mm-hmm. right? That are that are kind of the the villains of that film, right? Right. Um, and in Wally, it seems like it's the sort of stupid, fat, maybe not so poor. We're not really sure about the. You you were talking about how there's sort of class issues that are kind of under the surface, but they never really uh, kind mm-hmm. of bubble to the top. Um, the sort of fat, white, over-consuming. I'm going to keep saying Midwestern because they all just seemed very kind of Midwestern to me. Um, It's, you know, like you're saying, the kind of people they see in the bank in Captain Fantastic, the kind of people that you see if you go to Disney World walking around with their fanny packs and, Mm -hmm. and, you know... um, It's like the B-roll footage. The headless B-roll footage you see on local news when they're talking about obesity rates. You know, there's always someone like, you know... You know what I'm talking about? Yeah, yeah. They're, just, they're like a stock image, kind of. Yeah. Um, stocky image. A, st- a stocky <laughs> image. Oh, God. If we had listeners, we'd get letters. Um, <laughs> but it's that, that, like you're saying, this obesity being a problem in, in Western culture. And there's a couple of different trends in it that I think are worth mentioning. And one of them is when it's poor, sort of rural white Americans. Um, you have this idea of the, the food desert and lack of access to, you know, organic or, or natural food or whatever it may be. And um, especially in, in Appalachia, you have things like uh, Mountain Dew being like the the regional beverage, right? Mm-hmm. So drinking that instead of water, putting that in a baby's bottle or whatever, right? Um, and that's very different from the kind of consumption that I think the people in Wally kind of trigger in our heads, which is a a very sort of, again, I want to say it, kind of Midwestern sort of overconsumption because we have the means to, right? Mm-hmm. We have the means to go to Disney World and eat a $100 steak dinner at Mickey's Sirloin Grill or whatever. Right, but it's it's so much more complicated now because I, I remember my, even, my, even my grandparents, that, you know, that sort of generation, I'm 32, my, my grandparents' generation identified chunkiness with health 
you know, saying saying he looks healthy was kind of saying he's a little bit overweight, which means their family had enough money to feed him properly. Yeah. But it's it's uh, the inverse is true now because because shit food is the cheap food, yes. and that is what's readily available to everyone, especially mm-hmm. poor people. Um, and so, you know, obviously in, in the past, uh, obesity was directly linked with opulence. Yes. Um, and that is just the exact opposite of what it is now. And, and you see the only uh, fit humans you see, if I'm not mistaken, in Wally are in an advertisement. Yes. You know, and so and so the fit, wealthy class is, you know, selling images to the unfit consumer class um, that makes them more unfit. You know, it's always the fit people in the McDonald's commercials. Uh, it's always fit people who are happy drinking Coca-Cola. Uh, you know, anyway. It's not the person whose doctor told them please stop eating fast food right? Um, and they're, you know, rolling in and getting two Big Macs or whatever, right? right. Um, which is not to say that, you know, not to say that they're, it's their fault by any means, but those people exist, right? And that's the cheap option, right? You, let's say you, you work a double shift and you don't have time to go home and cook for yourself and your family. What do you do? You swing by McDonald's, mm-hmm. right? Um, it's sort of designed to entrap a certain a, a certain demographic of the population and not others that have the time to either um, you know do their own shopping or pay someone to do their shopping for them. Yeah, um, as cl- as cliche as it is and, and highly referenced as it is, that documentary Food Inc. kind of explores that issue very very directly about the the time poverty you know, overwork being as big an issue with food consumption as availability of food. Um, Because, you know, food, good food is available for cheap, for relatively cheap, but it's not prepared. You know what I'm saying? You can buy a bag of rice and beans and, and you can get fresh vegetables for a decent price at any grocery store, really. But you can't. Uh, the people who need uh, to be that thrifty are the people who do not have the time to cook in that way. Yeah. Um, the, uh, speaking of the class issues, though, the fir- one of the first things I thought of were, at the beginning of the movie was e-waste. Um, it's interesting to think of this movie. Think of Axiom. Um as the Western sort of first world and Earth as the third world. And so the Earth as the third world just becomes the sort of dumping ground or has become this dump for the first world. And, and I know we've both seen this video in, in, a, in a class we took about the e-waste problem in Ghana, yeah. which is, if you're not familiar with it, we in America put all our computers and electronic waste into shipping containers, send it across the ocean to Africa, unload it, 
dump it and call it a donation and it gets written off as a as a tax exempt donation the uh, third world people uh, the local residents of wherever we dump it the video we watched was uh, in Ghana mine this trash for precious uh, like copper and things that they can use and sell and then they because there's so much of it they burn it and of course it's cancerous and uh, there's all these public health issues going on because of this and uh, so basically we're dumping our garbage on third world countries uh, saving money because of it and and causing cancer while we're at it Uh, anyway in relation to Wally, I think it's interesting to look at the axiom as first world, the earth is third world, and, and Wally as, as a sort of inhabitant of that left behind world. Uh, sifting through the garbage. Sifting through the, the shit, yeah. And part of that is that we don't, I think we have this mental block where we don't view technology as ever being trash. In the future, we don't see we don't look at an iPhone and think about it as having a future in any kind of landfill. Uh, we think it's some sort of magic device that will always serve some sort of higher purpose. Um, so that's why I see, and I've seen this happen, you know, a number of times. People at the dumpster in my apartment complex just throwing an old flat screen TV into the compactor <laughs> and not even thinking twice about it. And part of, the, part of it's laziness of not looking for where you could dump that. But I think a bigger part of it is just ignorance of not knowing that that's not normal trash, right? If there is such a thing as, like, a normal trash, which is, like, hopefully biodegradable and will go in a landfill and, you know, spend a little bit of time there turning into something else, um, a flat-screen TV is not that, right? It's a very complicated uh, machine that has a lot of things in it that are... Uh, not only not biodegradable, but poisonous. Um, you know, we, one of the things about the the documentary you're talking about is that um, getting a lot of um, sort of negative effects from fumes of burning this e-waste, but also the fact that some of the, some of the products we have can just contain chemicals that are themselves toxic. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, so not not even viewing those things as being waste. Right. Um, or not even just not viewing anything as being waste, really. You just you you know you throw it in the trash can, you take the bag to the curb, the truck comes and gets it. It's the last you ever think about it. Um, there's also there's also the the narrative of technology being a a way to prevent waste and pollution. You know we we think of. Oh, save save a tree! Don't don't print that. Email it to me. Yeah. Uh, and, and yeah, it, to some degree, obviously that that's helping. But that that sort of meme sort of obscures the fact that we have to throw this shit away too. <laughs> yeah. You know, um, and it's going to third world countries. Um, and I'm, I'm looking for it. I can't find it. There's a quote in in Slow Violence. Um, here it is. This is from Lawrence Summers uh, from a Confidential World Bank memo. That is an epigraph mm-hmm. to uh, Slow Violence. 
He says, uh, <clears throat> I think the economic logic behind dumping a load of toxic waste in the lowest wage country is impeccable, and we should face up to that. I've always thought that countries in Africa are vastly underpolluted. Their air quality is probably vastly inefficiently low compared to Los Angeles. Just between you and me, shouldn't the World Bank be encouraging more migration of the dirty industries to the least developed countries? So, with uh, that's not even done out of ignorance, just evil, if, you know, uh, willful imposition of our uh, horrible practices onto onto underdeveloped countries, or I don't even say underdeveloped. Uh, third world countries or whatever the politically correct term global is global south however you want yeah, to label yeah. the, the places that, that get shit on uh, coming and going right you have um, in, in the first place you have extraction which takes all sorts of uh, degrading and destructive forms whether it's different kinds of mining or it's uh, you know children um in Africa going to these uh, rare earth metal mines and digging with their hands for the things that go into the chips in your cell phone. Um, and then you have manufacturing. You mentioned Foxconn with the nets, uh, the suicide nets and you know all those kinds of things. And then the actual product gets shipped. We get it. We enjoy it for a couple years, couple months until the next one comes out. And then we go from extraction to excretion and we just shit it all back to you know where from whence it came and now okay now it's your problem we're we're done having our fun now you can you know pry it apart and sell the scraps um yeah and and like like that quote i just read sort of shows this is not an undiagnosed you know unconscious problem that we don't we don't know the extent or 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 there's a small group of you know environmental humanitarians who are like the fucking people know what's happening here, uh, mm-hmm. and it's it's a willful thing that's happening. Uh, <laughs> the the thought that just popped in my head was the sign in uh, or the the oft repeated phrase in verse reform: "Can God forgive us?" <laughs> like, yeah. This is just this is like weirdly this is the the lightest movie we've watched. It's a children's movie. But it's also like producing maybe the most somber conversation we've had, because this is—I mean, this is real, real shit. Yeah, and and just to, the way I've been thinking about it lately, and this is from uh, Andreas Malm from his newest book, *The Progress of the Storm*. And he's talking—he's talking about something unrelated to what we've been saying, um, but he, he's talking about how climate change is covered or not covered in the news. Um, and the way he sums this phrase, this uh, passage up, I think, is really important. Um, so he's talking about the, one of the greatest pathologies of this time of warming, and he says the non-threat of immigration tops the headlines and debates every day, while the super-threat of actually unfolding global warming struggles to make it there, even when the most sensational records are reported. This is not a random fact about our times. And I just really love that phrase of saying, you know, this is not a random occurrence, right? This is not some sort of footnote of history. Like, this is the main current. Yeah. It's it's not a a cute thing to notice. It's very much like we talked about in the episode on First Reformed, 
when Cedric the Entertainer's character lists as you know one of the things that the the young people in the church are dealing with is like uh, hyper violent video games, climate change. Uh, it, it's just climate change is one of the uh, one of the things in his list. It's not it, it you know it's compartmentalized. It's it's just a footnote or what does he say a, a random fact about our times yeah like yeah. The, he says these are not random f- fuck I have to go back and look <laughs> at it again I've already forgotten what he said um, I was like yeah this is really changed my worldview, and then I forget what it is um, this is not a random fact about our times a random right? fact about our times um, yeah. so looking at these things and saying like these aren't one-offs like these are these are trends to be noticed right and, and they're trends because they are so prevalent of um something i mentioned to to uh students in my class the other day that, that i thought that, that kind of gave them pause and and to the point where none of them said anything about it we were talking about um i, I forget exactly uh, but it was sort of about how what's covered in the news is not always the most important thing in the world, which is a very kind of basic concept, but sometimes, you know, young people don't get why that would be the case, right? They don't understand um, bias (laughs) on a very kind of basic level. Uh, And I mentioned the uh, immigrant caravan that was going to come and murder us all uh, a couple months ago or, you know, back during the elections. And I said, well, you know, that's the reason that there was that there was so much uh, time spent on that immigrant caravan that was going to murder us all. And then once the elections were over, we never heard about it again. And they all kind of stopped and they're like, shit, you're right. We, we never heard about that again. And I was like, exactly. Um, you know, it's, it's interesting to me. You, you mentioned the news and especially the sort of age age group you're, you're working with and, and that we've worked with in the past of. Uh, high, late high school, early college, that sort of thing, who have grown up with um, with smartphones. And there's, uh, you, you mentioned bias, and it's like a new kind of bias that comes with with getting your news on the smartphone, where it's not sort of... Uh, Here's the conservative. Here's the liberal side of things. You know, one of them, you know Fox News is slanted and CNN's slanted. Whatever. It's it's more insidious than that. It seems to me. And I I always notice on my news feed on my phone, it'll say things. Uh, you always see the phrase "personalize your news," and isn't that sort of the exact opposite of what news should be? Shouldn't news be sort of things that are objectively important? And I'm not saying news can be objective, purely objective, you know, because that's maybe impossible if it's written by human subjects. But what I'm saying is news categorically is important to many people. That's why it's news. Uh, and so this trend of just having on on your news feed, oh, the new season of True Detective is out, or like, you know, this this musician you like, new album dropped, uh, like that's not news. But you can set it up to where the outlets for your news are just these, you know, personal 
idiosyncratic uh, preferences. Um, also, I've noticed a disturbing uh, uh, trend of the phrase "what you need to know" in in the newsfeed. Yeah. It's like on on Mondays, it's like everything you need to know about what happened this week. It's like, don't tell me what I need to know. Like, like, <laughs> I'll be the judge yeah, of that I'll, computer. Just tell me what happened, and I'll do the hard work of you know sifting through the bullshit, uh, which is which is what the news is. You you know trying to figure out what's important. Uh, but yeah, I, I think it's a very difficult time to to get the news. It's a difficult time to think in any sort of meaningful sense without just wanting to implode upon yourself like a dying star. Um, it, it, it's just, it, it's rough. And the, the fact that there are so many... <laughs> You have everything being politicized at the same time that everyone is saying, let's not politicize this. Right. Uh, let's not talk about, you know, the New Zealand shooter's politics or what inspired him to do such a horrific thing. Let's just mourn the dead. Like, right. no, that's that's not good enough. You, like, make, a, you make a movie that shows uh, the inevitable future of the earth uh, with the problem of pollution and suddenly you're engaging in liberal fascism. Exactly. Because, again, only the left wants on the, the human race to thrive on planet and earth. That, yeah. It's like major news outlets now are are reduced to the level of, of Twitter and, and YouTube comments and like the, the internet is the bathroom stall wall of the world. It's just the worst yeah. shit and of course, that it gets the most clicks, and and so that's what you see the most. And you know, stop, stop. Donald me before. was here. His penis is here. <laughs> right. And and what I was gonna say, stop me before I sound like an angry old man. You know, but it's so strange that the the children's movie is what brings this out in us. Uh, it's this liberal fascism uh, provoking us. Well, it's, it's kind of like how Jordan Peterson only wants to talk about old Disney movies. Right? He only wants to rant about Pinocchio or right. whatever it may right. be. Um, it's because these are, and, and I always emphasize this to people, and I think it's it's true in a lot of ways, is that these are the kind of vital cultural artifacts of our times, mm-hmm. right? Like, I think Slow Violence by Rob Nixon is brilliant and important, but for the average person, it's... Wally is fast and furious, right? Those are the things that are important to them in the culture, and and that's and that's not to to try to seem elitist in any way because I feel the same way because that that feels uh, kind of lonely. You know what I'm saying? Like uh, I was just reading part of the introduction to Slow Violence, and he's talking about Rachel Car Rachel. Carson, uh, who who Rob Nixon's very much a uh, descendant of, and um, how she see, he, he says that she kind of abhors this sort of self enclosed academic environmentalism, and that it has to open itself up to these things. Um, so and so, I think that's why we uh, clearly we are the type of people who are moved by. You know, f- fucking academic environmental criticism and yeah. 
and, and you know, we sort of talked about our sort of personal preferences and films. I was the sad kid watching Ordinary People and that sort of thing. Uh, but that's not to discredit the actual pleasure that is just a, a, a Disney film. But it is, uh, what I do think we, we want to say is that it is worth paying attention to. Um, so that there isn't this sort of blind passivity and we are the humans in Wally, uh, you know, just passively accepting this, you know, uh, path of least resistance. Because um, it's really simple to dismiss it all kind of with a wave of your hand and say, Oh, it's just a movie. Who cares about that? Like, that's not important. Mm-hmm. Well, what is important, right? These movies make billions of dollars. Every time a Marvel movie comes out, which is owned by Disney, mm-hmm. it's going to make a billion dollars world worldwide, right? You're going to have more in common regarding that film with someone living in any of the mega cities of China than about anything else in your life. I was, I was in uh, Barcelona, and I was sitting at a bar... And I got, I struck up a conversation with the, the bartender, uh, this local guy from, from Barcelona, and he uh, was a super fan of Marvel. He, he, I mean, he had seen every Marvel movie. I haven't seen a Marvel movie since Spider-Man 2 with Tobey Maguire, I don't think. Uh, but, so yeah, this is not just an American thing. And we've throughout this podcast we've sort of been limiting our scope you know uh, naturally because that's what we're familiar with but this is an international thing this is uh, I, I guess the term people use now is soft power which you know seems to me a a nice way to not use the term neo-colonialism uh, but yeah, I mean, these American products are, uh, especially movies, are the world standard. Hollywood is the world standard for a film. Yeah. Uh, Which is uh, embarrassing. <laughs> Where, didn't you say that you met someone, <clears throat> maybe when you were in, in Italy or something, and they were talking about the movie Were the Millers? Yeah. Uh, what They didn't know... They. Uh, so the, the people I was talking to were actually from Russia, but were li- living, they were students in uh, Rome. And so it was very interesting to see what American culture they knew and what they didn't. And they loved Pulp Fiction and Fight Club and these sort of like 90s sort of classics in, in, in our lifetimes. Uh, but they had never heard of a knock-knock joke and they could quote by heart, "We're the Millers." <laughs> God, uh, it, it, you know, I don't, I don't know how to explain that. Um, anyway, we're getting getting off topic there, but no, I, I think that's very on topic. <laughs> and I always, I make it a point to watch. I've seen most of the Marvel movies, and it's not really because I like them that much, but I feel like. I need to understand kind of where Keep your the finger culture's on the at. Yeah. Right? I need yeah. to check in and see what's happening, right? right. Um, <clears throat> so it, I think that that kind of thing is really important. It can help you sort of understand where American culture is because I think those films are 
saying way more about American culture than than some others because that's the that's the mass consumption. That's what's supposed to apply to the widest demographic possible. Right. And there's a there's a way to study anything that is meaningful. To to watch you can watch with the right orientation you can watch any um product uh, entertainment product and and have a meaningful experience it doesn't mean that it's going to be the experience the filmmaker intended you to have it, in a lot of ways it'll be a result of your own creativity and like we do on, on this podcast our own reading you know kind of uh, our, the own our own context that we create through uh, through our immersion in a discourse uh, and then applying that to the, to the film, uh, which is the same of like m- most great novels, right? You think any of those old white dickheads thought that you know you're going to be reading that book and like making connections to God knows what else, th- th- making to connect connections to contemporary things that they couldn't possibly have dreamt of, yeah, you know, um, or just reading it in a way that they never in a million years meant for it to be read, but that's mm-hmm. what you're getting out of it, right? right. The magic of art, right? That's the magic of, of of art and interpretation that Disney wants to own and bottle and sell to you at a premium, um, and they will do it. Um, it's that great. Uh, I'm going to butcher it, but that quote from uh, "Child of God" by Cormac McCarthy, and they're talking about Lester Ballard and. It's like why why wouldn't God just kill him if he's so evil? And he says something like, "You know, this is a, a culture that that wanted their evil and they would have it." <laughs> that kind of thing. We um, it, it's weird how often Cormac McCarthy quotes have uh, presented themselves in thinking about these these movies. I meant to look one up. There's one from Blood Meridian, I think, about how a man can build a machine that can do evil long after man has disappeared and it it made me think I thought about that in relation to Wally because you don't see humans for a long time and I it just made me think of that idea of creating these machines that you know humans find a way to uh, indirectly perpetuate destruction even without us being present Um, but it also the opening of Wally also made me think in that same vein of the Short story. There will, uh, there will come soft rains. Uh, you know what I'm talking about? Where the no. uh, it's a Ray Bradbury story where you see the sort of smart house. Shout out to uh, Disney Channel original. Disney Channel original film Smart House. But it's a sort of smart house that uh, functions on its own, and you realize as the story progresses that humans have been wiped out by some nuclear bomb or something. And yet this house continues to operate. The toast gets made every morning. Uh, <laughs> uh, anyway. Yeah, and that's kind of what Wally was. But then humans show back up and they recolonize the Earth because it's Pixar movie and you have to have some sort of happy ending. Right. Um, so, and you know, and there it is. Where, where maybe a more uh, compelling movie would be just Wally alone forever. <laughs> Right, and it, so it's implied that Wally has been doing that job for seven hundred years, which is goddamn. <laughs> so, and that that human technology on the Axiom and and 
I guess there are other ships in, in the fleet or whatever has not advanced in 700 years. Mm-hmm. Um, sort of, I don't know, I find that fascinating. I find the time scale fascinating. Yeah. And it was probably just sort of like a throwaway kind of joke of like, oh, that's a long time and you right. can't really comprehend it. But that's the kind of thing where, you know, we're talking about like uh, trying to watch things critically or to get things out of them that maybe, um, that maybe you would miss if you're just watching it as like, I'm going to eat my popcorn and take in a film. Um, but just really thinking about what that implies, like 700 years, that's mm-hmm. crazy, crazy time, right? That's a biblical age. Yeah, that's... Uh, um, so anyway, yeah, I guess that's... We can uh, stop there talking about Wally. And for next week, we've decided to go even further back in time. So Wally, we were saying, was uh, before we started recording that... This is the oldest film we've done so far from 2008. 2008. Yeah. So next week we'll go to 2007, uh, set a new precedent there, and we're going to be talking about uh, There Will Be Blood, directed NCAA. by, yep, directed by uh, the man himself, Paul Thomas Anderson, which we both agree uh, is, you know, and this is not an unpopular opinion, uh, probably the most talented director working today. I, I don't have any... Uh, doubts about that. I mean, for for me, for my for my money, Paul Thomas Anderson is the best living director who just keeps churning out masterpieces, uh, and that's not a not a real that's not really disputed when it comes to There Will Be Blood, but it is disputed on some of his other ones. Either way, There Will Be Blood. Yeah, There Will Be Blood, uh, and we'll talk about how it's sort of universally thought of as a masterpiece. Uh, we'll be hanging out with Nathan Plainview. Trying to get that that sweet oil, yeah, that sweet it, that, that Texas be, tea. That must be his long lost brother uh, to Daniel. Daniel Plainview, Plain, yes. <laughs> Why not? I always want to call him Nathan for some reason. Uh, um, at any rate, yeah, uh, yeah. Let's let's do. There will be blood, and uh, that's all I got. Yeah, and I'll I'll learn all the the proper character names. By next week, <laughs> and we'll be ready to go. Maybe it's like Nathaniel Plainview. You're thinking Nathaniel Daniel? Maybe I don't know. I'm just my brain's bad. I don't know. <laughs> I don't know how else to explain it. Okay. Twitter and stuff. Oh, God, see, my brain is bad. Uh, so follow us on Twitter at Anthropod Tweets. Uh, it's going to be available this episode, like all others, on iTunes and SoundCloud. Um, please find it there and. Um, keep on trucking. Yeah.